Hello, welcome to the Leading for Resilience podcast, where we ask senior decision makers to share their thinking on what kind of leadership builds resilience in this time of permacrisis. I'm Shazre Cumberhill, Director for Strategy and Impact at Resilience First. And I'm Peter Willis, based in Cape Town, a senior associate of Resilience First and the founder of Conversations That Count. Today, we're joined by Lieutenant General Richard Nugie, a retired British Army officer who, at the end of his distinguished career, oversaw the development of the Ministry of Defence's Climate Change and Sustainability Strategy. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Shazri. It's great to be here. So, Richard, we are very keen to hear your thoughts on our core question, which is, what is now being asked of leaders, in your view, both in the private and public sectors, as we collectively face a rising tide of crises. We're interested in both the qualities that an individual leader might cultivate and then bring to bear when facing a crisis, and how one approaches the task of leadership so that over time, one's organization or community becomes more systematically resilient to such crises. So that's where we're going, but perhaps the best way to embark on this is to ask you to reflect, first of all, on your own journey of leadership, and how you cultivated a sense of what resilience actually means, which we assume you have done because of your job. Well, thank you, Peter. It's interesting. I've been reflecting uh, recently on what sort of person I am as somebody who has uh, become the product, if you like, of 36 years, perhaps over 40 years, if you count my sort of early days uh, in, in the army, in the British army in this case. And having done 10 operational tours where at least some people were doing their utmost to try and kill me and reflecting on uh, what that has led me to as a leader. And I think where I come out is, and and forgive me, I'm I'm not somebody who talks about um, sort of lists of leadership qualities and things like that, because I think that every leader is different and leadership is different in different situations. But what is particularly relevant to resilience is that I would call myself a pragmatic optimist. And I, and I explain why. The optimist bit, I have patrolled out of enough gates, whether it's Afghanistan, Iraq, or Northern Ireland, where I spent a lot of my child or my young time as a soldier, going out of a gate knowing that somebody was trying to kill me. If you believed that you were going to be killed every time, that you went out the gate, you wouldn't go out. Eventually, it would become too much for you and you wouldn't go out at all because no soldier wants to take his own life, so to speak, by going into an impossible situation unless it's really desperate. And so you become an optimist. It's never going to happen to me. It's never going to impact. Or more importantly, it'll be all right on the night, so to speak. It'll all end out all right. And I think as a leader, that's really, really important for climate change, that if we despair, we give up hope If we give up the opportunity to turn around and say, we can do something about this, and there are a number of people who have just given up and said, we're never going to succeed, we might as well just all do nothing. If leaders give in to that, then at the end of the day, we will succumb to some of the worst potential things that are going to happen as far as the scientists are concerned. So there is a really important aspect of leadership in this very difficult, crisis-ridden environment that we seem to be heading towards which is that we must remain optimists and remain positive about we can do something about this and not just accept that it's going to happen to us. There's a fatalism there, which I think is very damaging indeed and actually quite dangerous when talking about climate change and talking about resilience. The second word, pragmatic, it's not good enough just 
to wail about it, to shout about it, to say lots and lots of things about it, for scientists just to produce reports about it. Yes, of course, all that is necessary, but it is not enough. You have to pragmatically do something about it as well. And I think leaders in this environment have to act as well as present an optimism. And so I think from my perspective, all my years of being in the military as a pragmatic soldier, as I say, on lots of operational tours, but being an optimist because it's never going to happen to me, I will still come back from that tour. I will still be able to go wherever with my family and so on after the tour. If you don't believe that, you're in the wrong job for a start, but also you're in the wrong business of trying to build leadership, build resilience within your community. And the community for me at the time was uh, soldiers who were under my command. And just to give one tiny example of that, in Afghanistan, I, I was responsible for uh, drawing up the plan for the withdrawal of NATO troops in 2014, which was the big exodus before the, frankly, catastrophic exodus in 2021. And when we pulled um, 70,000 troops out of Afghanistan, if I hadn't believed that we would all get out without anybody being killed, if I hadn't worked through the pragmatics of that happening, and we just said, you know, well, we're not going to bother planning it, or we're, we're just going to accept that lots and lots of people are going to be killed in the process. The Taliban would have won, if you like, the psychological, but also would have won the storytelling that they had kicked us out of Afghanistan. In fact, they lost that storytelling by all accounts. We chose to leave. And the reason we could say that was because almost nobody was killed in the exodus, drawing people out. But most importantly, we had a really strong plan that did that. That's an example of pragmatic optimism. That's what we need in terms of resilience. That's really interesting. And I think you've touched on quite a, quite a challenge, I think, for a lot of leaders in this space, which is how to get that balance between being optimistic, by, between presenting a vision of the future that is positive, so we're not succumbing to this fatalistic, we're all doomed scenario, while at the same time, though, portraying, like conveying the seriousness of the situation. So that balance between that, I think that age old saying of prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Where do you, Richard, yourself, uh, how, how do you find that balance and how do you convey that to your teams and in the, in the troops that you're leading? So I would start by saying that, well, there's two things I would say. The, f the first is if you look at what happened to the world during the pandemic, the vast majority of the world locked down in one way, shape or form. In Europe and probably North America, although I don't know North America as well, we, we locked down, we effectively crashed the economy. We changed our behaviours very significantly indeed, and we saved about, some say 7%, some say 17% of emissions. In other words, not even a fifth of our emissions were saved, and yet we crashed the economy doing so, and we changed everybody's behaviour forcibly doing so. So you've got to look at what has happened, what has worked and what hasn't worked. And of course, that wasn't about climate change, but it's a really, really good example of you can change people's behaviour, you can force a change in behaviour, but unless you get to the root cause of what's happening, it won't work. And so I very strongly believe that, and what keeps me going in a sense is I am a really strong believer in innovation and that when humans are put against, you know, when they've got their backs to the wall, actually, they innovate their way out of problems. It was the philosopher Malthus in the late 18th century who said we'd run out of food by the middle of the 19th century because the Industrial Revolution will create uh, too many people for the to feed. He was fundamentally wrong then. He's still 
fundamentally wrong, despite the fact we've got 8 billion people on the planet now, and there were, what, 2 billion in the 1800s? Why? Because we've innovated our way through it. We've found ways of increasing the amount of food that's produced by the world. We haven't stayed still. So I'm a, a really firm believer in innovation as the answer. But there's a much more interesting question, which is if you cannot force behavior change, and I, I firmly believe you can't force behavior change. I am not somebody who would turn around and say, we must stop everybody eating meat, because it's not only detrimental to the, uh, to the poorest in uh, communities in the world, but it's unrealistic to try and ask people who really like meat eating meat to stop eating meat. You can ask them to reduce, but telling them to stop is not going to have the desired effect. You're just that they'll find other ways of doing it. Look at stop drinking alcohol in the prohibition in America. What happens? You get an undercurrent of uh, alcoholic drinking, which is much worse in many respects. This is the way that human behavior operates. They don't like being told what to do, humans, that they don't, you know, against their will. And therefore, what you need to do is provide incentivization. You need to provide incentives. If you look at where the majority of emissions are, for example, and this is true in the military as elsewhere, it is through the industrial base that we use in order to be able to operate in a modern world. So we've got to find a way of explaining to the industrial base of the world that it is in their interests, it is in their incentive, you know, provide incentives. And I'm not just talking about financial incentives, but they help. It is in their interest to curb their emissions. Now, you can have stick, you can have regulatory requirements, but far more powerful is some form of incentive. And the way that I do it, I always talk to, when I talk to companies about this, when I talk to the military, I talk about working with the grain of the company, like the wood grain. Don't try and cut across the grain. It is very inefficient. Go with the grain and try and understand. So what is the company's purpose? And this has become slightly sort of characterized as a bit woke, which it isn't. What is the company actually trying to do? And how do you make that? How do you make the response to climate change, the response to emissions, the response to building resilience part of that, as opposed to in opposition to that, if you like cutting across the grain? If you can do that, and that's what I did in the military, in, in, in the UK military, I looked at it and, and instead of talking about emissions, in fact, I, I gave a speech, which is don't mention emissions. It's a bit like sort of don't mention the war, don't mention emissions. It's not about emissions. As far as we're concerned in the military, our purpose is to defend the nation's citizens. And emissions don't come into that purpose statement at all. What is in the interests of the military is finding military capability that can be enhanced by the technologies that are trying to cut emissions, by trying to build resilience by being self-sufficient, which is only possible because of the innovations and the technology that's come along in order to try and solve the problems of emissions and climate change. So using resilience, using actually saving money, using enhanced capability, operation, enhanced operational advantage, some call it, in order to reduce emissions, and then the military is really interested because you're creating a more efficient, more effective military at the same time as reducing emissions significantly. That's where we've got to with the UK military. It's about understanding what will really make them interested, as opposed to flooding them with, you should cut emissions because you're creating too many. Nobody likes being told that, even if it's true, and they're not going to react well to it. You've got to find a way that they'll react well to. Richard, I'm very interested. I want to go back to your very original sort of image of you walking out of all those gates, uh, knowing that there are people waiting to kill you. I like this sort of 
optimism, pragmatism, and listening to you, it's, it's clearly your sort of philosophy, and it's got you through a lot of gates. And I also hear you as the, that's also the spirit of the entrepreneur, which is, come on, guys, we're going to win sometime, somehow, let's go, and let's be efficient, and, and so on. So your description just now of the military liking it much more if you can lay out the possibility of them becoming more efficient, better at their job, and so on. That really makes sense to me. Uh, I can understand how military minds might get excited by that kind of encouragement and incentive. But then I also found it interesting that you're talking about incentive. Nobody likes to be told what to believe or what to do or, you know, to reduce it. And then I think of what military training involves, like you go to boot camp, and that's exactly what you do. You, You basically have to mold people in a way that no private company would dare to do. And... I'm just wondering, I'm just <laughs> just a little bit sort of, not skeptical, but just curious that, that what you've just been saying in the last part is about how do you persuade ordinary citizens around the world to want to do this? How ordinary company management around the world to want to change their behavior? And actually, the army's learned over centuries that the best way to do it is to be unbelievably tough early on. I wonder whether you've got a thought about that. It's a really interesting point because actually, what we teach to our soldiers very early on, I would argue, is two basic things. We teach there are ways to do basic drills and there are ways not to do basic drills that'll get you killed. So you better jolly well listen about these basic drills because otherwise it'll hurt you. So from the simplicity of you must point the rifle down the range before you load it and pull the trigger, Because if you're waving it all over the place, the chances are you'll either kill your mate or you might just shoot yourself in the foot. So it's really, really basic. You tell people how to do the real basics to keep themselves safe in a very difficult environment. What I'm hearing is that you play to these recruits the high stakes that they are entering into. We're talking about life and death, which, which of course is not so easy to sell to the average citizen, particularly if you're a politician, you don't want to mention death. Whereas if you join the army, you've got to think death if you're going to be alive. So what makes us different to any other other organisation in the world is that we are required to take life and our life to be taken. And we're told that right from day one. You know, that makes us different to every other citizen in the world, pretty much. But I don't, want to, I don't want to overplay that because the second thing, which is in a sense just as important, is a set of values. And it's a set of values and standards that we expect our people to meet. And so you'll find that every recruiting school, for example, we get them to learn by rote what the values and standards are. Now, if you add very, very basic, don't do harm to yourself, and you add values and standards, on that platform, you can build much more nuanced leadership, command, and approach to how you tackle difficult problems. It is a characterization which is only partially true that we follow orders. There's a lovely story, which is you ask a a naval ship's company, 500 people to turn left, and they all turn left because the captain pulls the wheel over. Same with the aircraft. You turn a regiment of the army to turn left, 50% will turn left, 50% will turn right. Some because they don't know their left from their right, but some because they deliberately want to do something that they have been told not to do. That is the characterization of a soldier. And actually, that is really healthy in battle. 
because the moment that the bullets start flying, I can assure you all your great ideas and your plans disappear out the window. And you start to react to what the enemy's doing, which is almost always different to what you thought they were going to do. And so, so you have to be adaptable. You have to work within your own wits. And that, I think, is powerful in a climate change environment where you've given them the basics of what are the principles. You've given the basics, actually, where are we trying to get to? And so if I translate this into climate change, we, of course, don't want to turn around to people and say, doom and gloom, you're all going to die. That's, that's actually counterproductive, I would argue, in many cases. Uh, because it leads to despair and then do nothing. It's not that which is important. But then you think in terms of values and standards, and you think in terms of what actually are we trying to achieve here? It's really straightforward. It's actually to reduce emissions without, in an ideal world, so changing our values and standards and our ways of life that actually we react against it. That's the interesting piece that we need to try and solve. And I don't think that's that different because what it isn't doing is telling people how to do that. It's telling people what we're trying to achieve. And that's exactly what we do in the military. Yes, we have orders, but they at best are a guide. Doctrine, we call it, we call it which is our, our sort of body of learning, is a guide. And you're told, read the doctrine, understand the doctrine, never follow the doctrine slavishly. Because by doing so, you will put it wrong. You'll put the wrong example in the wrong context and you'll get it wrong. So use it intelligently as a guide. That's what we try and teach our soldiers. So we're not go there, do that. Sometimes you have to do that, but very rarely, actually. Some really interesting lessons there for corporate leaders, I think, to learn. Because, And I'm going to steal Peter's words here, because Peter, you often use this term of being good in a crisis. And I think, Richard, what you've just described is exactly that concept of every single person in the army and the defence forces learning how to be good in a crisis and leadership knowing how to kind of give that knowledge outwards so that they can trust that when disaster strikes or when things go south, everyone in their team will know how to behave in a way that is not going to shoot themselves in the foot and hopefully not do too much harm. So I think a lot of lessons to be learned for the corporate world there where we often see organizations almost grind to a standstill because nobody's willing to make decisions. Nobody's willing to kind of, everyone's waiting for the boss to give an order because no one has been equipped with the skills they need to be able to respond to emergencies, to a crisis situation in real time. So I think some really interesting lessons there. We have a, a system of understanding what we're being asked to do. This is, I think, and it's called mission analysis. So you're given a mission and you analyze it. And, and there are a series of questions that we ask, but one of them is not what is our boss asking us to do, but what is the intent of our boss's boss? What we call the two up principle. Look two up. What is our boss's boss idea? And if we can translate this into to climate change, I think it'd be enormously powerful. You know, what is the ultimate we're trying to get to here? Not, and, and, and so if there's anything there, that, and the idea of doing that is if, if your boss's decisions, your boss's approach is wrong for the circumstance, as long as you know where ultimately you're trying to get to, it doesn't matter that you don't directly follow what you've been told to do, as long as you're within the intent of the overall commander or whatever it is in our circumstance. That's really, really powerful. So, so in a sense, and here I'm, I'm, I'll have to be careful, but you can almost say you can break rules as long as it's within the intent of what we're trying to do. That's important. 
in, in a crisis that an awful lot of rules have to get broken if we're to get through, yeah. because the rules were made for peacetime, as it were, for a different context. No, there's a difference. I, I think there's, uh, and here I need to be really careful with the sort of climate change, there's a difference between breaking rules and, and sort of actively going out to break the law because you don't think that law is a, is appropriate. But, but I think in the, in the sort of context of what I'm saying, I think looking beyond just the immediate is really important. And I think understanding where you fit into that and how you can do your bit in that becomes really very important. So if I may, Shazra, just I just want to slip in a thought here, which is that coming from a more naval than army family, my father was in the Royal Navy, and uh, I'm fascinated by your comparison between the you know the turning left and everybody in the ship has to turn left, whereas in the army you train them to have a think about it first and and sort of act out of their gut a little bit more often and so on, and then following what you then talked about, which is the lessons for corporates here, Shazare, seems to me that we've probably got far too many companies that are trained by the Navy, where the the employees are waiting for the CEO to turn the wheel, and then they go to lift. Whereas what we may need in much more unstable times, which is where we're headed, is a slightly more army-type training. I'm just trying this out for size. I think there's a lot in that. And I think it comes back again to innovation. When we were in the Second World War, and it's the last time we declared war as a nation, and so it's sort of relevant. The Falklands wasn't a war. The Iraq was never declared as a war, nor was Afghanistan. So there are examples. We harnessed the intellectual capacity of the entire nation to innovate. Who would have thought about bouncing bombs being successful? Who would have thought about floating tanks would be successful? We harnessed the intellectual capacity and we allowed, in both cases, um, they were called funnies. We allowed sort of weird ideas to be experimented and come to war. Why? Because actually we were desperate to try anything that would make a difference on the battlefield. And so we'd lose less soldiers. And by the end of the Second World War, frankly, we were running out of soldiers. So we needed to try and find ways of making sure that we didn't lose too many. And we found ways of doing things that were told to be impossible. And this is why I think, you know, now we should be harnessing the intellectual capacity of the nation. So we should be using our universities far more effectively. We should be using our organizations far more effectively to look for those innovations to say, how can we do this? That actually we can find ways of both combating climate change and emissions, but also to build resilience and adapt. And I think this is what's so, so interesting is that this has become a niche market. To many, to many respects, as opposed to what I say to companies is, is uh, okay, I, I use the, the vehicle, if you like, of embedded carbon and say, how much embedded carbon is in your supply chain? And can you reduce the amount of embedded carbon in your supply chain? And they would say, what's the value of that? And I said, well, it's really straightforward. Embedded carbon is the amount of energy it's taken in order to be able to produce that product in very simple terms, very, very simple terms. That's what embedded carbon is. I'm sure lots of scientists would criticize me for saying that, but in simple terms, that's probably right. So if you reduce the amount of embedded carbon, what you're actually doing is reducing the amount of energy required in order to be able to create that product. If you reduce the amount of energy, of course, it is cheaper. So why wouldn't you do that? And I've got a practical example of that in that the, the new buildings that we put onto our training estate, the first set of buildings, beautiful new near net zero buildings, 
modular build, near net zero buildings. I went, uh, I was there at the opening of them and I went to the managing director and a sort of senior officer, slightly tongue in cheek, slightly don't know what I'm talking about, but it's a nice idea sort of thing. I said to the managing director, do you think you could reduce the amount of embedded carbon in this building? I had no idea how much embedded carbon there was, but I just thought it was a nice thing to say, a provocation. I opened the second iteration of those buildings in a different part of England. And he bounded up to me and said, General, we've reduced the amount of embedded carbon by a third by looking at every single material and asking the question, is there a cheaper in carbon and therefore a cheaper in cost, actually, energy efficient way of delivering the same outcome, whether it was glass, whether it was a wall, whether it was the piping, whether it was the basins in the, you know, in the toilets? Is there a cheaper way from an in carbon perspective? And he said, we found lots of cheaper ways of doing it. And guess what? The building was cheaper. And so on a fixed price contract, we just doubled the amount of solar panels on the roof. And what's the effect? And we put in better systems in the the building. What's the effect? This is now a net negative building. Over the year, it gives back far more electricity than it takes. By the way, therefore, we've wiped out the cost to the base that that building was on. We've wiped out the cost of energy for that building or for those buildings. And they put that cost line, which was in their budget, into making some of our infantry ranges electric, which weren't electric before, and having pop-up targets come up electrically. In other words, it had a material effect on our ability to fight because we had looked at different materials in a building. That's the sort of example we should be using and say to all supply chains of all businesses, think about it from that perspective. It won't always be possible. Of course it won't. But where it is possible, why wouldn't you do that? Because you'll become a more efficient business. That's so fascinating, Richard, because we often hear of these transition costs, transition risks to becoming more green, (laughs) for lack of a better overall word for that. But I think what you're trying to say here is that there are real opportunities for innovation leading to benefits we may not even have thought about if we really set ourselves a question of, can we make this better and deliver the same outcome? So where there's a will, what I'm hearing is there's a way. I'd like to come to a slightly slightly different question now, and I'd like to explore with you, and this is as much my own interest, and I think our listeners will find it interesting as well, the relationship of the military with the concept of climate risk and where I'm coming from this. So we've been talking about how, you know, you've you've obviously overseen the you've overseen the plans about how the military, the impact that the military has on the climate and how we can reduce some of those negative impacts, but also In post-war Britain, is climate risk seen as a risk to the very kind of the ability of the military to perform its core duty, which, as you've put it, is to protect citizens and protect borders? How how does the military perceive climate risk when it comes to its its purpose, so to say? So I think there's there's two aspects to that. There is a, I think, an acceptance that the amount of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief that we do to protect our citizens and, of course, our citizens, because we have overseas territories as a, as a, as a nation still, includes people all, all around the world and in the Caribbean and so on, who are much more susceptible to climate change than people on the UK mainland. So I think there's a general acceptance that we're going to be doing more humanitarian assistance and disaster relief than we have done in the past. And so that, if you like, skews part of the military in it. If you look at the Australian, I think it's just produced yesterday or today, has produced a defence strategy, a revised defence strategy. It talks about the damage done to the military by constantly having to deal with climate change consequences. 
and I was told by a very, very senior Australian officer that one of the issues is that for three years, they've either been fighting COVID or they've been fighting fires or they've been fighting floods. And so soldiers, you know, haven't had the opportunity to train in their primary role, which is defending their nation through the force of arms, should it be necessary, because they've been doing lots and lots of other things as a consequence of climate change, because they're a, they're a formed body of people who can, um, who are a disciplined body of, of people uh, to be used for c- combating climate change consequences. So there's that side of it that actually, whether it's in this country, it's called military assistance to the civil authorities, so helping make sure that our own country doesn't fall apart because of the consequences of climate change, or whether it's abroad in terms of humanitarian assistance. I think we'll be doing more of that. There's, of course, the aspect of can we actually fight and win? That is our purpose. Can we fight and win in an environment which is fundamentally different? And we need to, therefore, look at our equipment. We need to look at our tactics. We need to look at how we train people to be able to fight and win in a much more tempestuous environment, whether it's hotter, whether it's bigger waves or whatever it is. You know, there will be different ways that the exigencies of climate change will affect us. But there is a third piece, and I think this is gaining traction significantly in the last year or two, and that is there is quite a large body of evidence which suggests that people who are hot are more likely to be irritable, and that can lead to tension and potentially conflict. You'll find all sorts of scientists say that isn't true. I don't believe them in some respects, because I think as our natural thinking, when we're really hot, we become more irritable, um, and it can lead to tension. There are definitely examples of organizations such as ISIS, such as Al-Shabaab, such as Boko Haram, who are taking advantage of the fact that climate change is, is meaning that certain parts of certain countries are unlivable in, and therefore people leave those parts of the country and they become destitute because they have, they'll leave at the last safe moment, and therefore they'll leave having expended all their capital, whether that capital is sheep or, or, or animals, or whether that capital is, is, is mediocre agriculture or whatever, or, or sort of pittance agriculture, they'll leave that at the last safe moment. So they'll come with nothing. And these terrorist and alternative organizations, non-state actors, as they're called, become much, much, much more powerful because they offer an alternative. So you've got things like that going on. You've got a breakdown of society in a way that is quite dangerous, I would suggest, in parts of the world that are particularly affected by climate change. Do they affect us as a Western European island off the um, edge of uh, sort of the continent? The answer is yes, if our allies across the world are affected. So the very fact that Kenya, for example, which is one of our oldest allies because of our history, is having to fight al-Shabaab on its northern borders means it is not protecting its citizens across the rest of Kenya. And there are implications of that for pirates and things like that. You know, it, it is being stretched because these are these sorts of organizations are pulling it in too many different directions. And I feel desperately sorry for the Kenyans who are having to do that, having to try and defend their citizens against all of that. And that is very strongly linked. I wouldn't say a direct consequence because that's not necessarily the case in every case but they're very strongly linked to the effects of climate change. So it has an effect on our allies. It has an effect on us in lots of ways in terms of the security of our nation. If food is much higher prices because there's less to go around because it's being damaged by climate change, if there's less water around and if water is being used as a weapon, if energy is being used as a weapon, as Putin has very successfully done, very successfully, weaponized energy, if people's personal lives are more at risk 
because of the flooding or whatever it is of climate change. I think that's much less in this country, but much more for our overseas territories. And then there's there's sort of one more security that I think everybody's alive to. It's a desperately politicised environment, which is climate migration. Now, we don't know what the effect of climate migration will be. But if you hear some of the people saying stuff about the number of climate migrants that might be on the move, personally, I think they're overestimated. But if if they're right, there's a number of climate migrants who will come into Europe, who'll come into Northern Europe, because uh, particularly because that's a very, very stable part of the world from climate change. Then you can immediately see the potential for impact. And so I think actually that is beginning to be understood, that actually our national security as an island doesn't stop at our borders. It never has. Our national security as an island is protected way out in other parts of the world. And those other parts of the world are probably being more affected by climate change than we are. Linking that back to companies, then, we see a lot of companies kind of disregarded, and I need to be careful how to say here, but when we talk about scope three emissions, for example, you know, companies are not really, are only just starting to tackle those and report on those and understand the impact of those. What you're saying here and what I'm hearing is that climate change affects us all, even if it doesn't affect us immediately in terms of our own lands getting flooded or facing other disasters, the impacts are so far reaching and they will come back. So it is a matter of national security. Do you think Do you think the government and the military understands this now? I'm sure there are elements of government who would say, well, everything I've just said is a load of rubbish. I'm sure there are elements of society who would say that all I've said is a load of rubbish and it's scaremongering. But I think there is a wider perception in government, that this is something that we shouldn't just put our head in the sand in. We at the very least should should test some of the things that I'm saying, you know, some of the things that are being said about climate and national security. NATO, interestingly, has just set up a centre for um, centre of expertise for climate and security in Canada. Militaries are beginning to wake up to this because, of course, they're going to have to live with the consequences. I, I would just say, you know, at COP26, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace talked about two things. He said, Either we're creating problems for climate change or we're going to have to deal with all the problems of climate change. One way or the other, the military is going to get involved. And that was his line at COP26. If I may, can I bring you back to this, to me, fascinating observation you made a a couple of minutes ago about the problem with having the military called upon to respond in cases of natural disaster. And you gave that Australian example. And I wonder, it exposed to me my casual assumption that the military are the obvious people to call on in a natural disaster because they're better organized, they're used to camping out in rough conditions and they're disciplined and all those things we talked about earlier, they've got work well in rough context. But what you're also saying is this is one massive distraction from the core purpose. And it's not as though hostilities get suspended because Ah, shame, as we would say here in South Africa, you know, someone's had a natural disaster, so let's stop invading them or, or if we're Al-Shabaab bothering them and so on. No, quite the reverse. So my, my question to you is, where does this go? How does, the, how does a conscientious military cope with both now? Because it used to be that you had one main purpose with a little side issue every now and again that you would fulfill, but that's changing. I'm really curious to hear how you imagine that's going to play out. So I was very intrigued when, as a result of this, we discussed 
the answer was no, but we discussed creating a civil force who were there specifically to look after national disasters or a, a part of the military that was expertly trained in national disasters, but not so well trained in, in defending the nation through force of arms. It didn't come to anything, and it didn't come to anything, I think, for two reasons. One is there's a, there's a logic gap there. Militaries aren't, in most cases, militaries aren't at war. In most cases, militaries, therefore, are preparing for war. And a distraction, yes, it is a distraction, but actually it is a distraction you can afford as long as you're not at war or even anywhere close to war. That will become increasingly difficult as, if I'm right, the level of conflict in the world rises as the result of climate change because our primary purpose is conflict. Our primary purpose is trying to prevent conflict and then to win conflict should we be embroiled in it. So at at the moment, I think it it is doable. It's not ideal by any manner of means. It's doable as long as we're not tomorrow asked to go to war immediately against a uh, an adversary. So there's a sort of timing piece here and there's a sort of balance piece here. And, and it may be that that will come in the future. But the other side of it, of course, is, you know, natural disasters, we're not suffering a natural disaster in the same place every day. And therefore, actually, it, it is a contingency force rather than a standing force that you need in order to be able to deal with natural disasters. And the way that the Western military has gone, not all militaries by any manner of means, I accept that, but the way the Western militaries have gone, I can, I can only speak from their sort of example, is not to have contingent forces that do nothing 90% of their time, because that's extraordinarily wasteful of both people, and they get very bored, but also of resource. And so you do try and combine what is becoming these distractions. The danger, as you allude to, Peter, is that as the tide of conflict has the potential to rise, it is coincident with the tide of climate disaster rising as well. That puts us into a very difficult position. But what the militaries, I think, have accepted, or certainly the ones I've spoken to, is we are going to be much, much, much busier. One or the other of those two is going to make us very, very busy. And I was listening to William Hague, Lord William Hague, who gives his 10 views of or 10 points of the changing world. And one of them is increased defence spending, not because he's a conservative, but because he can see an increase in the potential for conflict in the world as we move down a a more bipolar world, which we're moving into. You've just said what I was thinking there. I think we're going to see a case for increased defence spending. And, you know, I grew up in Pakistan and and we spend a a significant portion of our budget on the military. And, and, And for some would argue good reason. So it's interesting. And I think there may be lessons to be learned there from countries who are already having to face dual crises in the form of domestic security, security concerns at their borders, as well as increasing impacts from climate change and how their militaries have responded to that. I wouldn't say Pakistan's the best example. but Well, I think Pakistan is quite a good example in terms of the amount of the military. I mean, if you think about what the military did during those floods in order to try and preserve life of Pakistani citizens, I think that is quite a good example because there's still uh, tension on the Indian border. There's still tension from IS in Pakistan and from AQ in Pakistan. You know, there's various elements that are disrupting Pakistan and the military got to deal with them, definitely. But the military are also being asked to deal with the floods. I think it is quite a good example. Now, you can talk about the politics of the military in a completely different light, but the practical application of military force is being used in two completely different directions at the same time. My father was in the army, so I have the utmost respect for 
for all aspects of the military there. And I think they do do a really good job of keeping the country going in some very, very difficult times, particularly in the last sort of three decades or so. You're describing a, a ratcheting up of this double demand on the military of the security situation becoming more volatile and the call on um, natural disaster relief and and rescue and so on, which often lands in the military's lap. And I'm just thinking through the lens of um, corporate leadership. It seems to me that the parallel is the the warning signs are flashing that yes, in some of the areas where your organisation may do business or have supply chains, the security is going to rise and you'll have ways of monitoring that and getting intelligence on that. And the climate crises, what we know about them is that they are almost always local and they move around. Um, You know, like wildfires move rapidly, floods move rapidly, heat waves the same. And I'm just teasing out in my mind the, the parallels. And I'm, I'm imagining sitting with a, a group of corporate leaders who are saying, well, help us with all your sort of military background and your insight into the, the climate crisis. Help us how to think about building agility and resilience to this really unpredictable you know, we can predict that the at the moment that we can definitely predict that emissions are going to go up and therefore global temperature is going to go up and so on. But that means nothing in terms of the location and timing of natural disasters, which are capable of knocking over our, our facilities, our assets and so on. So I think it's different to that, Peter, if I can interrupt you. Oh, I think the approach that I would take is to turn around and say what you've got is you've got your traditional approach. In the military's case, it's conflict preventing conflict and then resolving conflict once it once it comes to that. And you've got something else making the ability to do that more difficult, which is the climate change disasters in this case, which we're being pulled towards as whether you call them distractions or whether you call them an alternative purpose, but not one stated. If you put that into a business context, I think what I would turn around and say, your purpose as a business, it is going to be more difficult to do that in an environment where at exactly the same point in time, your supply chain is becoming much more vulnerable. And it's becoming more vulnerable unless it happens to all be around the sort of five miles around you. If if it has any international perspective at all, that supply chain is going to be more vulnerable. And therefore, actually, at the very point in time when you're trying to fight through your purpose in a more difficult world, your tools to do so are being constrained by the effects on the supply chain, which is a direct result of climate change. And therefore, what you've got to do is look at how do you make your purpose more simple and easier? How do you how do you make what you do more simple and easier? And then how do you build resilience into your supply chain so that it is less susceptible to exactly the impacts that climate change will create on it? And I don't know what those might be because it'll depend on every single supply chain. But actually looking at the tools that you've got, how do you make them more resilient to be able to deliver your purpose in a world that is going to become more difficult full stop because of climate change? Yeah, no, that as a, as a, a big picture uh, purpose, I mean, yeah, you've used the word purpose. I would say that is a plan for corporate leaders to say, this is that we're, we're heading into a landscape that looks roughly like this. And it's only ever going to be roughly but it'll be more volatile and full of surprises and so on. And I wonder whether we could perhaps end on the sort of um, leadership qualities, which in a way was where we began with you going out of the gate and your pragmatic optimism. 
what do you say or would you say to business leaders for whom you have just sketched that exact scenario you've just done now in terms of what should they be developing in themselves so that they can be really superb leaders as the crises start piling up? So I'd say two things. One is understanding. Understand what the situation is and understand how that's going to affect your business. And don't don't um, just ignore it because that's the way you've always done business. Understand what could hit your business. It's really understanding the risk matrix. I'm quite surprised that the vast majority of businesses that I've come across, not the FTSE 100, but the vast majority of companies I've come across really don't understand an approach to risk that, that actually should be driving elements of their organisation. Best, it's a tick box exercise. We've got our risk matrix. We're okay, aren't we? Without really understanding the implications of that. So understanding what could happen. And then the second thing, which is almost more important, I would argue, and of course, is not just about climate change or resilience, is trying to build in your workforce an ability for them to have ideas and to embrace those ideas. Because actually, the response and the, if you like, the ideas will come from the most unexpected places. And that's what we find in the military. Some of the best ideas are from soldiers, not from the senior officers. And it's that quirkiness that you want to try and encourage within your organization, within limits of your organization. But it's the quirkiness of that that you want to try and allow, because they may well come up with an idea that you haven't thought about that will save your company. I have never thought that quirkiness was going to get humanity out of this. And I am now so encouraged. Of course, we are wonderful quirks. Uh, particularly if we're allowed to be. So uh, thank you. That's. I'll close on a final question, which is when you look at the climate crisis now and knowing everything that you know, what gives you most cause for hope? I think what gives me most cause for hope is young people care and want to do something about it. And actually, it's not just young people. There are an awful lot of people who genuinely want to try and find a solution. It is never going to go as well as we as we think until our backs really are up against the wall. And they're not yet for many people. They are for some, but not for many. But I think it's this endless, boundless enthusiasm from some young people that actually we can innovate our way out of this. That gives me hope. And if we can persuade governments at the same time, all the better. But actually, governments and peoples always leapfrog each other over history. Sometimes the government with a good idea, sometimes it's people with a good idea, and a good government will respond to the people. But if the people don't have good ideas, you can never expect the government to come up with all of them. Um, Our people do have good ideas and are trying to do their best, sometimes despite government and sometimes with the support of government. That's, That's the nature of human nature. We need quirkier governments, basically, don't we? Governments are not good at quirkiness. I'd agree with that. <laughs> well, it's a good thing people are, so so we'll lead into that. And um, thank you so much, Richard. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you, big thank you, Richard. I found that fascinating. A pleasure. And thank you for listening. This is one of a series of conversations we'll be having on this topic. So please subscribe below, and you'll be notified when our next interview is ready in a few days' time. See you then. Thank you.